Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. And I wanted to uh, thank the uh, youth music team. Didn't they do an awesome job today? Hallelujah. And it was a delight seeing all the dancers up here. It just, just, just makes my heart joyful to see all the, everybody dancing. <laughs> Hallelujah. Both, both men and women. And I want to apologize, uh, at the beginning of the service, if, uh, we didn't have slides and people watching on the live stream uh, didn't have anything, uh, our computers froze up. So, uh, I apologize and, and our uh, awesome tech people were able to uh, get it fixed. So, so praise the Lord. Uh, well, Shabbat Shalom. We've been in a long, uh, year-long, uh, ongoing series uh, on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today's part 22. Uh, and uh, we're going to look today at uh, true servanthood uh, and becoming like little children. Uh, and the fact that Yeshua gave his life as a ransom for many. Amen. So let's turn to Mark 10. We're in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13 to 16, and then we're going to skip and drop down to verse 35 to 45. So, so and send the overhead here. Mark 10, 13. The people were bringing little children to Yeshua for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Yeshua saw the, saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I'll tell, truly I tell you, anyone who won't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask for of you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and one of us on your left uh, when, you, when you're, you come in your kingdom and your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Yeshua said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? We can, they answered. Yeshua said to them, you'll drink the cup I drink uh, and be baptized with the baptism uh, that I baptize with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard this uh, about this, they became indignant with James and John. Yeshua called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Uh, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. These last verses address the question, why did Yeshua die? And what what does it matter to us? Yeshua says, if you want to know me, you must become childlike, spiritually childlike. Look at Mark 10, uh, 15. Truly I tell you, anyone who won't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then James and John show they have no idea what Yeshua is talking about. Because they try to do uh, this power grab. Now, they take Yeshua aside 
and say, you know, now when you get elected, we want the top two places in your cabinet. <laughs> and when the rest of the disciples hear about it, they're indignant. And to clarify them for what he's been teaching, Yeshua again tells them about his death. And he says in Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we need to work backwards from the Emmaus passage and look first at his explanation, uh, his explication uh, of his death. And then, and then look at what it means to be childlike. So let's look at three points on the overhead police. Three points this text tells us. Number one, what Yeshua came to do. Number two, why he came to do it. And three, how we can personally connect to it. Uh, so again on the overhead, we'll flesh this out a bit. Next slide. Uh, what he came to do, give his life. Why he came to do it as a ransom for many. And how we can connect to it by becoming as little children. So first, what Yeshua came to do, Mark ten forty five again. The Son of Man came to give his life. He doesn't say, I came to die in some generic sense. Rather, he says, I came to be killed. And at this point, Yeshua parts company with every other successful world religion founder. And puts himself in the category, believe it or not, of all the failed religion founders. <laughs> Look at all the other founders of all the other major world religions. Uh, all of them overcame their enemies, lived to a ripe old age. Moses died at 120, still having all his strength. Confucius died at 70, surrounded by his disciples, an honored man in his hometown. Buddha died at 80 in complete serenity, surrounded by his disciples. Muhammad died, full of years, ruler over a united Arabia. And they all overcame their enemies. Uh, they'd been persecuted, exiled, uh, resisted. But they overcame their enemies. And they died old and full of years. And they all founded successful major world religions. Now then you have another whole group of people. Hundreds of them. And you've never heard of them. <laughs> they all tried to found major world religions. But instead of overcoming their enemies... They were slaughtered. They were killed. They were crushed. They were defeated by their enemies. And you've only heard of them if they were relatively recent. Uh, like, for example, uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco. You know, he was crushed in 1993. He was killed. He was overcome. And the only reason you've heard about him is because it was so relatively recent. But, but 50 years from now, no one will have ever heard of him. Now, here's what the, the Jewish encyclopedia says about Yeshua. Uh, it's discussing where he says on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, now, we know he's quoting Psalm 22, right? a profoundly messianic psalm. But the Jewish encyclopedia, it refuses to acknowledge this. And they go on the overhead. Instead, this is what they say. They say this. The, this final utterance was in all its implications... Itself a disproof of the exaggerated claims made for Yeshua after his death by his disciples. No real Messiah could suffer such a death. It's an impossible article of belief which, distract, which detracts from God's sovereignty and absolute otherness. Now, from a non-believing viewpoint, this opinion actually is common sense. From a non-believing viewpoint, how could this person be the Messiah? 
How could he be the son of God? How could this person ever bring in the kingdom of God? He dies an ignominious death. He dies what seems a premature death. It appears he's defeated. He's destroyed. And someone who's killed, uh, who's destroyed by his enemies, that's a sign of weakness. And so the Jewish religious leaders say, no real Messiah could be like that. And all the other people who are destroyed, you've, you've never heard of them. You know, the religions they founded are tiny, marginal little sects that, that die off or, or stay very tiny. And the founders of the major world, world religions, in contrast, uh, they're very successful. Uh, and these founders live to a ripe old age and they overcome their enemies. Except for Yeshua. Now why is Yeshua the exception? Something happened to his disciples that overcame their so-called common sense. Something dramatic happened. I put this on the overhead. Something dramatic happened that changed the cross from a proof of of defeat to a badge of honor. A, A bottomless source of joy. A consolation for absolutely anything. The cross became such a source of joy and power in the disciples' lives that Yeshua faith became the most influential religion in the world. Their lives were so changed. They were so attractive in the way they lived that they attracted droves of people. They were so fearless in the way they spoke and preached that they shared the gospel no matter what, regardless of the cost and the persecution. Everyone else sees the ignominious death of the founder at the hand of his enemies Uh, As proof uh, that God wasn't with them. But something happened to the disciples that changed the cross from a proof of defeat to a bottomless source of joy and peace. It turned their lives inside out and upside down. What was it? On the overhead. The answer is, here's number two. Yeshua came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is point number two. Because it wasn't until the disciples understood why he died to give his life as a ransom for many. Until they understood why he died, then that their lives could finally be changed. When they understood that the defeat was really a triumph. When they they understood why he died, it changed their lives. And the cross becomes the source of enormous power, spiritual power. But before we move on to to why Yeshua died, uh, let me give a little practical application note. Is there anyone here hearing my voice? Or anyone you know, who, not you, but you, someone you know who believes, yeah, you believe Yeshua died for you, but it hasn't really changed your life. It hasn't turned your life inside out and upside down. And if not, you might know that he died, but you don't understand why he died. The penny hasn't dropped. Uh, Because that's what happened to the disciples. When they were moved from the what to the why, when they understood understood why he died, that's when their lives changed. So why did he die? Why did he give his life? Again, Mark 10.45. He gave his life as a ransom for many. This word ransom, interesting word here in the Greek, is the word lutron. Uh, when we hear ransom, what do we think of? We think of like kidnapping someone, you know, and the price you pay to the kidnapper. 
But we need to understand how this word was used in the first century. On the overhead here, here's what one uh, Greek scholar says. He says, the word lutron took its origin from the practice of warfare, where it was the price paid to bring back a POW out of his captivity and slavery. Now, here's how it worked. There were no prisoner of war camps back then. <laughs> if you were in a battle and you lost, you either died in battle or else you were put in, into slavery. You were put into abject bondage and terrible grinding slavery. That was the punishment. And the only way out is if someone from your country came and paid this enormous ransom price. And Yeshua says that metaphor, that model is critical for you, for you to understand what I have done for you. Now, what's the, what, what's key is that uh, this model has both an objective and a subjective side to it. There is both an object, objective and a subjective reason why he died. An objective thing is something that happens outside of you. It happens to me. The subjective happens inside me. It happens in me. And what Yeshua is saying is that on the one hand, there's a debt to be paid. Why did he die? He came to pay the debt. But secondly, there's an internal heart condition to be changed. Uh, there's a condition he wants us to experience, which is liberation. Uh, because we're in slavery. We need to be set free by the ransom price being paid that he paid for us. So there's an objective element. Objectively, he came to pay the debt. And there's a subjective element. He came to set me free. He came to free your heart. Now, modern people, you know, we don't like keeping these things together. And we don't understand how they go together. So, for example... Uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi is this great example of this. He was, this fa- of course, this famous Indian leader, a pacifist, who helped lead India to peaceful freedom from the British rule in the, the mid 20th century. He was a Hindu, but he admired Yeshua, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, here's what, in the overhead, here's what he wrote about Yeshua. He says this I could accept Yeshua as a martyr and as an embodiment of sacrifice and as a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart cannot accept. So here's what Gandhi's saying. He says, I can handle the idea that the cross has a subjective influence on us. It's a moving example of sacrificial love. And it'll bring us out of our bondage to selfishness. A cross is a helpful example that he says that moves us subjectively to get us out of bondage of living for yourself into the liberation of living for others. But he says, I can't accept that the cross has any actual objective virtue to it. What I can't accept is that it objectively gets rid of my guilt and sin. I can't accept that. But contrary to Gandhi... The Bible says these two aspects of the cross, the objective and the subjective, they must go together. And if they aren't together, they fail. They fall. They rise or fall together. Let's look at this. First of all, why did he die? To pay the debt. A a ransom. 
Now I hear this all the time, this kind of standard objection uh, to the need for a ransom to be paid. I hear this all the time. Critics say, why did God need for Yeshua to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why does the biblical God seem to need to be appeased by human sacrifice? Yuck. You know, why does God seem to need to be appeased like some old primitive pagan God by human sacrifices? Now, even if you don't have this objection, you will run into people who do. It's everywhere today. So you need to hear this. And you need to know how to respond to these critics. Because there are some assumptions, some premises built inside this question that are very problematic. Here's an illustration. Let's say your, your car is parked outside front, which it probably is, right? Parked outside front here in the parking lot. And some anti-Semitic Antifa member with a huge baseball bat walks up to your car and starts beating it. <laughs> He's pounding your car, uh, breaks all the windows, uh, he breaks open the hood and destroys the engine. Your car is ruined. Now, our security team could easily take him out, but instead you call 911 uh, and the cops come. And the Antifa, the Antifa member, he drops his bat and he says, I can't believe I did this. I don't know what came over me. Uh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And the policeman turns to you and says, well, he's apologized. Just let it go. <laughs> Just let it go. Don't press charges. He said he was sorry. <laughs> And you say, give me that baseball bat. <laughs> and the policeman says, you're being vindictive. Just let it go. Now, in real life, let's be honest. You would be vindictive. <laughs> let's not fool ourselves and put on fake spiritual airs. Uh, in real life, you'd say, I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to throw the book at you. <laughs> Arrest that man. And if we're honest, we'd be filled with anger, Right? Uh, and, and, and a desire to hurt this person. And again, the policeman, he turns to you and he says, he's sorry, why, why can't you just forgive? I want you to see with this illustration that forgiveness is a huge problem. It's a conundrum. Uh, it creates a huge conflict. Uh, it's never a simple thing. Why? Because justice must be done. So even if you're not vindictive, uh, forgiveness is still a huge problem. It's a problem even if you're a loving person. In fact, it's a problem because you're a loving person. Nobody can just forgive. It's impossible to just let it go because every wrong has a cost. There's a damage. So in my example, either the Antifa thug pays you for a new car or your insurance company pays or if you don't have insurance you pay <laughs> the point is someone must must bear the cost of what happened it doesn't just go away someone will bear the cost there's no such thing as a wrong that's not paid for even for, uh, even forgiveness means bearing the wrong absorbing the cost no one can just forgive the debt doesn't go away. But secondly, it's not loving, really. If you love this young man, would it be good for him for you to say, oh, I'll just let it go? Would that be good for him? If you love society, would it be good for people in society and in his hometown for you just to, to let it go? 
If you really love this young man, it would not be good for you to forgive him and not hold him responsible. And if you love society, it wouldn't be good for you because you would be enabling and encouraging him and people like him to continue with their destructive behavior. And if you love justice, it wouldn't be good for you to just forgive him because you'd be making a travesty of justice. So therefore, here's where we get stuck. The more loving you are, ironically, the bigger the problem. The better you are, the kinder you are, the more benevolent you are, the more that forgiveness becomes an unsolvable problem. Because it's not loving not to punish him. And therefore, anyone who says, well, why can't God just forgive? This type of person assumes if God were a loving God, he'd just forgive. What I'm trying to show you is that even on our human level, Forgiveness is an insolvable problem. But how much more so would this be true of God? If we experience it as an insolvable problem, if we realize you can't just forgive uh, without somebody paying, uh, if our low level of benevolence and goodness and love uh, is like that, what must it be like for God? It's a huge problem. It's a cosmic problem. You see... You and I have a sense of justice that makes it hard to just forgive. But God is perfect justice. God's nature is the justice that we're sensing. You see, if you and I say, Yo, just let it go. We have all these problems, right? Problems in society, problems in this young man's life. But if God were to say, just let it go. That would cause catastrophic problems. The whole nature of justice would be at risk. You see, how do you know that violence and cruelty is bad? How do you know it's not just some kind of cultural convention, as Foucault and Nietzsche and other philosophers would claim? How do you know that violence and cruelty are objectively bad? How do you know there's a real standard of objective justice in the universe? Well, the answer is, if there's a God, there is a real sense of justice. And therefore, if God were to say, oh, just let it go, that would be to to say there's no difference between good and evil. It's all arbitrary. That would destroy the moral fabric of the universe. If God were to say, just let it go, how can we ever know what's right or wrong, uh, good or evil? So forgiveness is a huge problem, and God can't just say, can't just just forgive and still be a just God. So you mustn't say, well, if you were a loving God, he'd just forgive. Even you can't just forgive, let alone God. So what did God do? The answer is, he came to pay the debt himself. And this word come is very important. Uh, It's the word come, not the word go. Uh, what do I mean? Uh, an objection people say, you know, is, is, well, why did God need Yeshua to die? Uh, why can't he just forgive? Why does God seem to need to be appeased, you know, by human sacrifice? On the overhead, he doesn't. Because it doesn't say that Yeshua went, on the overhead here, uh, to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't go from us to God to appease, you know, uh, an unwilling God. No. He came to offer this sacrifice. He came to earth to pay the penalty. 
God, in the person of Yeshua, came himself to pay the debt. God himself brought the whole redemption forth on his own initiative. And you won't understand this without understanding of the deity of Messiah and the triunity of God. So on the overhead, God in the Father and in the Son infinitely suffered to pay this price. It's not the Son suffering to appease an angry and unwilling Father. No. Rather, God in the Father and God in the Son both suffered infinitely and both paid the price. The Son took the cup of God's wrath on sin, the cup of divine justice. Yeshua refers to this cup here in our passage. The Son experienced fatherlessness on the cross. He was abandoned, forsaken. But don't forget, the Father experienced sonlessness on the cross, which is every bit as bad. And they did it together. So why did Yeshua die to pay the debt? God himself paid it. Don't avoid the glorious complexity of the cross. If you say, why can't God just forgive? Then you've got a God far far more one-dimensional. You've got this one-dimensional little cardboard cutout God, uh, far worse, uh, who's a smaller person than even you are. Because even you can't just forgive. Even you're more complex than that. Your love says, well, I, I don't want to punish, but at the same time, uh, I can't not punish because that's also a part of real love. If I love, I don't enable or wink at evil. So you're complex and therefore you can't just forgive. How much more so with God? If you have a God who says, oh, uh, I just forgive, you don't have a real God. You've got uh, a one-dimensional cardboard cutout God. On the overhead. But here's what you have on the cross. A God who just forgives isn't a holy God. A God who won't forgive isn't a loving God. And a God who can't forgive isn't a wise God. Because he couldn't figure out how to satisfy both love and justice. A God who just, so a God again, a God who just forgives God just forgives everybody. He isn't holy. God who refuses to give, forgive, isn't loving. And the God who's unable to forgive uh, isn't wise. On the overhead. But in the cross, we have absolute wisdom, absolute love, absolute holiness, all fulfilled and satisfied at once. Yeshua paid the debt. He satisfied the holy love of God on the cross. And therefore, he opens a way to a whole new relationship that you can have with him. That's the first thing. What Yeshua accomplished on the cross is objective. It happens outside of us. And do you now see why he had to die? But that's not all. Because secondly, he died not just to pay the debt, but also subjectively to free your heart. And this metaphor uh, isn't strictly objective. No, this is a subjective metaphor to free your heart. Now, as you've just shown, there's there's an objective element to what Yeshua did on the cross. It's like you're in a trial and in court and you're condemned. But Yeshua comes in and he says, I'll pay the penalty on, on your behalf. I'll suffer the penalty so that you can go free. But in this ransom model, Yeshua says, I didn't die only to do something objectively outside of you. No. But also subjectively. I did something within you to bring you out of bondage. Now, 
How does the death of Messiah bring you out of bondage? Interestingly, there's a great deal of consensus, believe it or not, here on this point, between Eastern religions uh, like Hinduism and Buddhism uh, and Messianic Yeshua faith on why we're enslaved. All these religions believe that the normal state of human beings is to be spiritually enslaved to selfishness. We're all enslaved to selfishness. Now, there are some people who are power-hungry or money-hungry, and they're obviously selfish. But we need to look beneath the surface to see where all the rest of us are. Well, you say, well, I'm not that way. I give to charity. I volunteer at the soup kitchen. I spend time counseling messed up people. I'm a very caring, generous person. But here's what Hinduism and Buddhism say, and they have some insight here. They ask why. Why are you doing all these good things? Why are you so nice? Nietzsche asked these same questions. Why are you being so nice? Why are you being so seemingly unselfish? And ultimately, he says, it's for selfish reasons. Because you need to be needed. Why are you in this relationship? Uh, You say, I'm just loving this person. But the truth is, you need to feel attractive. Uh, All the religions agree that deep down inside, our egos are bottomless pits. We need affirmation. Uh, Oh, we need approval. Uh, We need comfort. Oh, we need power. We're desperately trying to prove to ourselves our own value. And therefore, everything we do, even the nice things we do, are ways for you to use the people you're helping to be sure that you're okay. It's so you can say to yourself, I'm a caring person. I volunteer at the soup kitchen. Of course, you never say this out loud because then you wouldn't be a humble person. You'd be a proud person. <laughs> and, and why don't you want people to think you're a proud person? For selfish reasons. <laughs> Both Eastern religions and Yeshua faith all say you need to be liberated from our inherent selfishness. Gandhi said, that's what was so great about the cross. Uh, there's this wonderful picture of, of, of sacrificial, unselfish love. Uh, it moves us out of our bondage to selfishness. But with all due respect, and Gandhi's a much better man than me, he is wrong about this. Dead wrong. He says the cross subjectively frees us from selfishness, but he doesn't believe it objectively pays any debt. But think about this. If it's only an example, it's not a liberating one. If it's only subjective, it's not subjectively liberating. At the very best, it's crushing, if you think about it. And at the very worst, it's crazy. Gandhi says, oh, look at this wonderful example. Doesn't it move you? He's forgiving his enemies. Look at, the, look at Luke 23, 34. And the cross, even, on the overhead. Yeshua says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Look at him forgiving his enemies and, and loving people, even on the cross. Isn't that a liberating example? Isn't that inspiring to you? No. Not if you really think about it. I hate these kind of examples. You know why? Because on my own, I can never do anything like this. It just makes me feel worse. When Gandhi says, let's be like this, I say, oh my gosh, this makes me feel guilty. I'm just crushed into the ground. I see him forgiving people. I see him forgiving even his enemies. It's not liberating. It's crushing on the overhead. But... If I see him forgiving me, 
If I see him on the cross praying for me, praying for the Father to forgive my sins, if I see him objectively paying the debt, then subjectively it begins to liberate me. If I don't see him objectively paying the debt, then subjectively it just crushes me. So it's silly for Gandhi to say, it's not an objective problem. It's not Yeshua paying our debt. It's just a subjective example of sacrificial love. No, that doesn't work. Here's an illustration. Let's say we're walking along Lake Ray Hubbard on a fine spring day. And I say to you, you know, as your rabbi, I want you, I just want you to know how much I love you. I really care for you. And let me show you how much I love you. And I throw myself into the lake and drown. Now, do you say, wow, how he loved me? <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful example of self-sacrificial love? No! You're going to say, oh my God, that poor man. He was mentally unhinged. <laughs> You're appalled by this example. You're offended by it. Okay, second example. Now, what if we're walking along Lake Ray Hubbard on a fine spring day, and you fall into the lake, and you're drowning. And I jump in, and I die saving you. It's only then we say, look how much he loved him. You say, you see, unless there's an objective peril, giving your life sacrificially is not a good example of love. It's a bad example. On the overhead. Therefore, unless, unless there's an objective paying of the debt, there is no subjective liberation. But now, if I do see the objective payment, how does it then subjectively liberate me? Here's how. Buddhism and Hinduism are right that we all have, deep down have this problem with our ego. Uh, we're living selfishly. You know, we're driven. Uh, we can't take criticism. No, we need people to love us. Uh, we're, we're over-dependent on our children uh, for our sense of worth. We're over-dependent on our parents for our sense of worth. We're over-dependent on our friends. We're over-dependent on our work. We're driven. We're insecure. Uh, we're living selfishly. What will heal us? The Bible says our problem is not self-esteem in general. It's that we're alienated from God. We're cut off from the ground of our significance. And here's what the cross does. The cross does not give you a proposition. It gives you a story. A true story. A ransom story. All the other religions and all the other philosophies say, don't be driven, don't be in such bondage. You're valuable. God loves you. You Don't you see that? And then maybe you'll feel good for a little while. But it's just a principle. It's just information. You know, God loves you. It's kind of this esoterically. But Yeshua comes and he says, I've got something deeper. Look at all these different gods from all these other religions. They all say they, they love you. But I have proven my love. Let me tell you a story, he says. A true story. I give my life as a ransom for many. The word for here in Greek, the word anti, uh, it means instead of. Uh, it means to substitute himself. And what he's saying is, I want you to see what I've done for you. I give my life for you. 
in Washington, D.C., over the Potomac River, there's a number of bridges uh, spanning the river. Uh, one of them is called the Arlen D. Williams Bridge. Do you know why? January 1982, Air Florida, Flight 90, taking off from Washington National, had ice on its wings. Hits the 14th Street Bridge, plunges into the icy Potomac. When the rescue helicopters uh, finally get there, it's sinking into the frozen Potomac. And the only thing left sticking out of the water was the, the tail of the plane. Everyone was either drowning or already drowned, except for a few people who were, who were in the tail, in the back of the plane. A few passengers were still alive, which you could see through the ripped fuselage. And one guy, Arlen B. Williams, he was the most visible. He was the most accessible. He looked like he was the most alert. So the people in the rescue helicopter, they, they lower the harness and the lifeline to him. But every time they pulled it up, there was someone else on it. The first time, he put someone else in the harness instead of himself. The second time they lowered it to him, he put someone else in it. Third time they lowered it, he put someone else in it. Every time, he gave his place of salvation to someone else. All the people who were saved on that flight were saved right then and there by Arlen D. Williams. The last time they lowered it to him, he was gone. He had sunk. He died. He died substituting himself for the sake of others. Giving them his place of salvation. He took their destruction that was otherwise coming upon them. He gave them his rescue. Now why does that move us? Because this is the most morally beautiful thing we know. In any story, fiction or nonfiction, the moral beauty of a story like that, a story of substitutionary sacrifice, just takes your breath away. Yeshua says, other religions give you information. I give you a story, a true story of substitutionary sacrifice. And when Yeshua says that, thank you. Excuse me. When Yeshua says that I've come to give my life as a ransom, as a ransom for many, clearly he's got Isaiah 53 in mind, the ultimate passage in the Hebrew scriptures on, on substitutionary atonement. Other religions say, yeah, God loves you, but how do you know? Yeshua says, this is the proof. What I did for you on the cross, on the overhead. And when you hear that, and when you see that, that he gave his life as a ransom for many, that and only that will come breaking through your selfishness and liberate you. And then everything else changes. Because then you know your value. Then you know what you mean to him. You know it. And then money isn't your source of significance. It's just money. And relationships uh, and love. And even your parents and your children aren't your ultimate source of significance. It's just your relationships. Everything becomes something you can give or not give. Uh, you, you can take or you can leave. And you just move through life poised. Because you're liberated. Why? Because your heart is freed. 
Not by a general proposition that God's a loving God. No, but by this. He gave his life for in place of you. Now, that's why he came to pay the debt and set us, set our hearts free. Now, finally, lastly, quickly, number three. How do you connect to that? On the overhead. How can you connect to that? Here's how. You must become, our passage says, like a little child. What does that mean? He's not saying be childish, but to be spiritually childlike. Let me suggest two aspects uh, of this. Little children are dependent, the first aspect. In the same way, you need to feel helpless. You have to not only know Yeshua died to pay your debt, but you must completely rely on what he has done. And not lean on yourself at all. Not on anything you've done. Rather, you must rely completely on him. Little children, they don't go in negotiating. They they go in and say, Daddy, you know, they're helpless. Uh, They want the whole thing. They need everything from you. So on the one hand, a little child is helpless and dependent. But on the other hand, children expect to be accepted. They expect to be loved. You know, a four-year-old walks in. He's sure that everyone uh, there is fascinated by what they have to say. <laughs> They're positive that everyone can find uh, them completely interesting. They're totally sure of acceptance. So on the overhead, if you have too high a view of yourself, you're not dependent like a child. You're not spiritually childlike. But if you have too low a view of the love of Yeshua... Then you're not spiritually childlike either. If you're either self-congratulatory or self-flagellating, the penny hasn't dropped. You haven't seen your value. The cross ironically shows you your value at your worst. Think about that. Here's an example. One of you comes up to me and says, David, you're the kindest person I know. You say that, I'll feel fine for at least a day. But, but yeah, but what do you really know about me, huh? <laughs> but if my wife Elizabeth were to say to me, you're the kindest person I know. Oh, my word. Because she's not only seen me at my worst, she's experienced me at my worst. She doesn't just know I'm selfish in general. She knows firsthand because I've hurt her by my selfishness. She doesn't just know in the abstract that I tend to punish people by emotionally withdrawing from them. She's been punished by my emotionally withdrawing from her. She has seen me at my worst. And therefore only she, the only person who's seen me at my worst, and who's told me about my very worst, when she says, I love you, And if she would ever say, you're the kindest person I know, that sort of thing passes into me and changes me forever. I believe it. In the same way, only the cross, only on the cross, do you have a God who says, I have seen you at your worst. And I've seen everything you've done to me. And yet... At the very same moment, Yeshua also says, look how much you mean to me. Look how valuable you are in my sight. And I'm the one who counts. 
It's my opinion that counts. If you're too self-congratulatory or too self-flagellating, you're not childlike yet. And the power of the cross has not fully come into your life. So as we close, ask yourself today, has the power of the cross come into my life? Does it? So go and learn what this means. The blood of Messiah cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, hallelujah. We need to see why Yeshua died today. We need a fresh revelation of the glorious truth that he gave his life as a ransom for many. That the blood of Yeshua cleanses me from my sin. To the degree that becomes more and more real to me, to that degree will I become changed. So, Lord, help me to connect to these key truths by becoming more spiritually childlike. Some of us, Lord, are too confident, uh, think too highly of ourselves, <clears throat> and thus we're denying the power of the cross in our life. Some of us have too low a view of ourselves, and therefore we're always beating ourselves up. Uh, always saying subconsciously, God, you could never love someone as bad as me. And that's not spiritually childlike either. So Lord, teach us today what it means that the blood of Yeshua pays my debt, uh, ransoms me from slavery, cleanses me from all my sin. Make your sacrifice atonement real to me, Lord. Uh, real, more real to me than I've ever known. So that instead of uh, proof of defeat, uh, the cross becomes uh, a badge of honor. Uh, it becomes a bottomless source of joy, uh, Lord. Uh, a consolation for absolutely, absolutely anything that, that we may have undergone. All to your glory. Hallelujah. And may it make us finally, Lord, fearful. I'm sorry, may it make it, Lord, make us, Lord, fearless, fearless in proclaiming your gospel. No matter the cost, no matter the persecution, you, Yeshua, you have come and seen me at my worst. And yet you love me to the bottom. So I thank you and I praise you. And I pray this all in your name, Lord Yeshua. Amen.